with confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. Welcome to Marching Orders, a This Week community news podcast series devoted to Central Ohio military veterans sharing their experiences. I'm Scott Hummel, Assistant Managing Editor at This Week. Let's get to it. Our guest started in the U.S. Army Reserve in 1985 before moving to the Navy in 1987. He was part of the Persian Gulf War in 1990 and 91, serving in both Operation Desert Shield and Operation Desert Storm. Decorations include Sea Service Ribbon with Bronze Stars, Coast Guard Special Operations Service Ribbon, National Defense Service Medal, Battle Effectiveness Award, Southwest Asia Service Medal, Defense of Kuwait and Liberation of Kuwait Medals, and the Navy Unit Citation. He retired from the Navy in 1991 as a Petty Officer Second Class. From Gahanna, Ohio, Ernest Massey, welcome to Marching Orders. Thank you. Let's get to know you a little bit. Just tell us a little bit about your family, what you do for a living, some of the activities and organizations you're in. Sure. Again, my name's Ernest Massey, and come from a family of uh, three sisters and my parents. I came in on the tail end of the of the stream, so I'm the youngest. Parents were in their 40s when I was born. My dad was, uh, during World War II, he actually joined the Army about two years before Pearl Harbor. Um, he was a military policeman, and back then, at, at, at that point in time, um, inside the White House, it wasn't Marines, it was Army MPs that actually were on duty there, and he actually slept there, and hmm. in, in the, I believe it was the East Wing. So he was actually stationed inside the White House as part of his rotation, and um, for a time he was uh, one of the bodyguards of uh, General George Marshall, who became famous for the Marshall Plan. Oh, wow, yeah. And um, he spent sometimes overseas, but he had the best duty going. It was an Army Air Corps base in Cuba, you know, and so he suffered greatly there. Sure. But that was during um, the uh, Battle of the Atlantic with the U-boat stuff, so he was stood there. So Washington, D.C., and um, Cuba is where he served as a military policeman. And then he was, a uh, um, after uh, working in the... Uh, steel mills up in the Youngstown area. He came down to Columbus and uh, got his engineering degree out of Ohio State and then worked for a series of defense contractors. And with defense contract work, whoever has a contract, that's where that group goes. So it was kind of like an itinerant life. So we had moved around a lot, um, Michigan, California, back to Ohio, that type of thing. So kind of grew up around the country. And the one good thing about it is even though he did a lot of traveling for work, summertime, he usually took us with him. So we actually, you know, as kids got to go all over the country, you know, um, through his work. I went in to college in Kentucky for a couple of years in the mid-80s, and that's where I joined the Army Reserve. After the second year, it just wasn't fitting for me, and so I quit school, and I wanted to go active duty Army, but at that point in time, they had some rules and restrictions of moving between reserves and active duty, so I knocked on the door to the Navy and went active duty Navy. Um, when I was an Army Reservist, I was, uh, uh, was known as a cavalry scout. I drove uh, M113 armored personnel carriers. And I went into the Navy, I became a gunner's mate, uh, working on the cannons and small arms. 
Um, went through gunnery school and electronics school up in Great Lakes, just north of Chicago. And then the first ship I was assigned to was a LST uh, 11, uh, 95, or 1192, which is the USS Spartanburg County. Um, was on there for 1988-89 time frame and um, had my first deployment um, to the Mediterranean, sort of like tail end of all the Lebanon stuff that went on in the mid-80s, late-80s. And as an LST, you're part of a marine amphibious readiness group, so there's several ships with you that carry about 3,000 Marines in total. And basically, you're floating around the med and basically in case of break glass type thing. And so uh, we would drop off the Marines at different different countries, and they would go do war games with uh, those countries' militaries. Then we'd pick them up, do our own operations, and then drop them off again. A um, little bit later, after we got back from that, um, I did a stint doing a what they call law enforcement operations, basically assisting the Coast Guard doing drug hunting in the Caribbean. And that's what, when you mentioned the ribbons and stuff, that's where the uh, Coast Guard Special Operations Service comes from. That was pretty interesting because of people trying to think they can outrun helicopters, ships, etc., etc. And it was mostly drunks coming out of uh, Key West. Mm. You know, um, in pleasure boats, thinking that it would be fun to try to outrun the Navy and the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard basically would seize their boat, seize, you know, place them under arrest, and so on. While I was on the uh, Spartanburg County, in the military, a lot of times they'll post um, people that want to transfer to your duty station, or maybe, hey, I'm out west, I want to come back east, you want to swap or a specific command has a shortage and they're asking if people would like to transfer and things of that nature. Well, I was always, because of coming from the lifestyle I had, you know, always moving around, I was like, yeah, I'll take a look at this and see what this is and so on and so forth. Yeah, well, you, yeah, because you were sort of, not, I wouldn't say a military brat, but I guess kind of, I mean, to some extent. Yeah, because, I mean, he worked directly with um, Army and Air Force personnel mostly. And, and, you know, he had that mindset, you know, from go. And so one day I saw that there was an opening um, for a gunner's mate on the USS Truett, which was a Knox-class frigate. A frigate is um, basically for a submarine hunting type thing. Okay. And so I took that um, as an opportunity and went from Little Creek Amphib Base, which is sort of like in um, the Virginia Beach area of Virginia, uh, to Norfolk, the bigger base, uh, a few miles down the road. And I was on that ship for about a year. And I was on um, on duty one night. Actually, let me back up. I was on leave in uh, late July, early August of 1990. And one of the big hobbies I have is fishing. And my family, since the late 1940s, knew a family in northern Quebec, Canada, now, they had their own lodge and cabins, but our families knew each other. Don't know the story because I wasn't around back then. But we went back up there to visit them and go fishing um, in July, August time frame. And this, of course, is right when the Gulf War really correct, started. Correct. So um, basically, I got a phone call when I got back to uh, my parents' house saying, you know, come on back. And so I flew back. 
and I was on the, the Truett. And that well, a couple nights afterwards, so we're talking. I think he, I think Hussein invaded Kuwait like August fourth or August sixth, and then it was basically like two days after that. Whatever two days after that happened was. So the very next night that I had come back, the uh, officer on duty that night said, "Hey, there are ships that are shy personnel, you know, that are being deployed. Do you want to go?" I said, sure. The next day, I packed my stuff, and I was on the USS Mississippi. Yeah, speaking of the Mississippi, it's a nuclear-powered guided missile Virginia-class cruiser. Which doesn't exist anymore. None of, none of the ships I was on <laughs> exists anymore. So, so, Spartan, what, yeah. so what was that ship like? I mean, did you have any uh, reservations or concerns no, about floating no. the nuclear power? No, no. I mean, you know, they've had nuclear-powered ships since the 50s. You know, and, and as far as I know, the U.S. hasn't had any problem. The Russians have, but I don't think the U.S. has had any nuclear accidents on, on board a sh- naval vessel. Um, yeah, but none of my ships exist anymore. The Spartanburg County was, I think, so to Thailand, and it burned, and it was destroyed. I think the Truett went to Malaysia, and then the Mississippi was, scut- you know, uh, chopped up, basically. They have to wait for the reactor to cool and do all that kind of stuff, but it's gone. Um, so I got onto the Mississippi, and it was like night and day. Like, the Truett, you know, is like one step up of, of a pirate ship, basically. I mean, it's hauling 400 Marines. You have 200 sailors, very tight quarters. Um, it's like a different world, the, the um, Amphib Navy is. I went to, that was the Spartanburg County, pardon me. I went to the Truett, the frigate. Now you're in Norfolk, so you got where all the brass is located, so a little bit step above. And then you've got um, a ship like the, the uh, Mississippi, where you got a, a full captain, you know, um, equivalent to a colonel. You know, if one shoelace is out, out, of, out of place, you know, you're, you're, you're doing extra. Mm-hmm. And so it was night and day. Uh, you know, the, uh, the Truett had like maybe 200, 210 uh, crew. The Spartanburg County, about 220. This thing had like close to 600. Wow. You know, it was very large ship. You know, two mess decks to handle everything. So it was on the Mississippi that you were part of the maritime interdiction correct, force. Correct. Correct. So, and, and, and ba- yeah, let me let me. So we got deployed like the day after I got there, and we sailed. You know, into um, the Med and went to um, Syracuse, Sicily, Syracuse, and there we uh, took on board uh, tomahawks, and we were only there overnight. And then from there, we went straight through the, uh, the uh, Suez Canal and, and was deployed uh, mainly in and around the Gulf of Aqaba, which is kind of like where Egypt, Israel, Jordan, Saudi Arabia converge. And part of that during Desert Shield, there was, if, if, you, if everyone remembers, there was a, an embargo on anything going into or, or um, out from Iraq. And so um, at that time, relations with Jordan, because of a large Palestinian base that they had there, um, it was unsure, you know, what side they were going to float. 
And so um, it seemed to be they were talking two sides out of their mouth because there were streams of ships coming out of the Gulf of Aqaba from Jordan that were lined with um, stuff that was basically stolen from Kuwait. Just to give our just to give our listeners a little perspective here, so I mean, you're talking the Red Sea here, the Gulf of Aqaba. You had Israel to the north, which was good, but you had uh, to the west was Egypt with Sudan below it. To the east was Saudi Arabia, Yemen south of that, and the Red Sea isn't super wide, 200 miles or so. So imagine being a disruption guy in that area around those countries had to be. Somewhat, somewhat scary, and, and there was a lot of shipping traffic there too, wasn't well, there? Well, there was a lot. There was a lot of traffic, but you're doing your job, so you don't really pay attention to anything else. I mean, pretty much. I mean, whether you're like a company company clerk, you know, a hundred miles behind the lines, or someone up front, you know, waiting for the word go, you're doing your job, and you really don't see anything else. You really don't think of anything else. Your training kicks in. I mean, for me, it was. You know, we're on duty, and when we're, when we're pulling duty, we're usually in, in the area where all the machinery is for the cannon, right? It's a room roughly this size, basically. Yeah, it's with, roughly with, about a 12 by a 20, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, and you have uh, the drum for the, for the rounds that feed up into the gun. You have, you know, like a control panel and everything, and you're there 24 hours a day. You know, and, you know, sometimes basically depending on when your duty hits, you know, you don't see daylight for like two days, you know, and and so like you're you're just constantly doing this. And then they ran a couple of teams like a like a like a Alpha and Bravo team for the Maritime Interdiction Force. Remember when I mentioned about the uh, working with the Coast Guard? Mm -hmm. Same thing here. You had a Coast Guard team on board because they were highly trained into running through ship's manifests and and know how to read, you know, the manifest, where they're going, where they're uh, coming from, what they're supposed to be carrying, how they're carrying it, things of that nature. How often were they not carrying what they said they were carrying? And and the whole I think, and, and, and I hope my recollection is good, I think our ship had, like, the most ship boardings. It was like 78 or 79. And out of those two, or out of those, only two that I remember of ours actually had something. Hmm. One of them was coming out of Jordan, and it was full of everything that you think of that could be stolen. Everything from cars to um, refrigerators to, you know, anything and everything that wasn't nailed down. And you can physically see, I mean, you could see like bullet holes in the cars and the blood. on. They were basically, you know, carjacking people, stealing the car mm. and trying to sell it abroad. And where were Usually, they coming from? Were they coming from America or were they coming from other countries? Now, these were, these were out of Kuwait. You know, these are things that the Iraqis had basically stolen out of Kuwait that they were trying to get cash for. And they were selling basically in Africa or South America, mostly Africa, different countries within Africa. And so, you know, they didn't have the, you know, they, I think they boarded them, either us and a couple of the other ships that were around us, like two or three times the same ship, till finally it was like enough and... They took control of it, and they sent, and uh, I think uh, some Spanish ships escorted into uh, Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. So it was basically confiscated. 
The other one was a uh, Russian ship full of small arms, ammunition, machine guns, rifles, things of that nature, that had no uh, ship's manifest. So you couldn't tell where it was coming from or going to. And they sent that one on its way, too. Hmm. You know, they didn't, they didn't allow it to enter, basically. Gotcha. And so, you know, we did that up until um, the latter half of November. So from early August, we put, when we put to sea, went to Syracuse, and then did that. And then early August, we came back into the Mediterranean for, for, to do some work on the ship in the port of Naples. We stopped off briefly at um, the island of Rhodes, Greece, for like a day or two, basically for some R&R. And then we went to Naples, did some work on the ship. And we were there through Thanksgiving. And then after that, we came back on station where we were. We did some escort duty of a couple of... um, supply ships, oilers, aircraft carriers going into the Gulf. Uh, I want to get to that in just a second, but you're listening to uh, marching orders. Just there in the Red Sea, what kind of pushback or resistance did you get? Did you have to run into um, any of that just trying to board some of these ships there? They were basically scared, <laughs> you know. You know, you see, you see a, uh, a six hundred and some odd foot U.S. cruiser with two cannons. You know, um, our our senior chief would had a sniper rifle up top. You know, we'd go out into the boat or whichever team went out onto the boat, the small boat over to their ship. You know, we had six, eight guys armed, plus the Coast Guard, couple guys from the Coast Guard. And so they would go out there. They weren't going to. They, you know, they weren't going to put up a resistance. No, no, no. <laughs> um, the odd thing was going through the Suez. You know, that was the first time for me, you know, the first time I went through there. And, you know, for people who haven't seen it, just think of a highway on the water. I mean, there's boats and small boats going back and forth uh, crossways as well as the major ships going through. And just to give our listeners a little bit of a picture here, I'm picturing uh, you're escorting ships from the Suez. So that's near Egypt. It's down and around Yemen, up the coastline of the Arabian Sea, and then into the Persian Gulf, right? Right, right. When we escorted those ships into the Persian Gulf, we were already on station in the Red Sea. And then we would just pick them up as they came through the Suez Canal and went through Yemen. Now, now the the trip, I, th- I think we were we I think we escorted the Kennedy um, when we went through. We did the Kennedy, and there was one of the supply ships and oilers that we did. But I think it was when we did the Kennedy. As you go around Yemen, um, at that time it was you know it, now it's not a friendly place, obviously, but mm-hmm. back then just as well. Um, they trained anti-ship missile batteries on us and we just turned our our firing radar on them we turned the cannons around the kennedy launched some aircraft and they shut down you know i mean i think they were just trying to show their you know their ass a little bit but was there was there ever a real time in any of those escort missions that there was a serious threat i mean i I know that like you said that was the only one that was the only i mean even when we fired tomahawks Mm -hmm. and fired the cannons i mean they're a ways away you know, that's the one thing about mm-hmm. about being in the Navy. You know, 
you push a button for a missile, that thing's a couple hundred miles away. Um, when the push and when the buttons push for the cannon, you know they're ten miles away, eight miles away. You know, so you have to have some long reach, you know, from the shore to to get to them. But you know, the only time that it actually got hey, wait a minute moment, was actually going through Yemen when they turned on their, you know, their targeting radar and they, they let loose like a couple small patrol boats, you know, and those are hard to hit. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that's when we turned the cannons towards them, the Kennedy launched their planes, and then they turned right around. And at some point you, you were... Uh you were shooting cruise missiles too, right? Yeah, yeah, we did the our ship um if if you remember pictures, you see things that are vertically launched. They come in from the deck of the ship. Our ship since it was built in the 70s wasn't done like that. Basically what they put is something called an armored box launcher. Looks like just like a big box. There's two of them on the on the tail end of the ship. Each one of them hold four missiles and we launch six of them. And um, on two different two different dates, so we launched everything we had except for two. And interesting enough, um, we had a um, stars and stripes or Navy Times photographer with us when when we launched um, the first time, and that picture actually made soldier of fortune in no april kidding. of 1991. Nice. And and I mean they did like an eight and a half by eleven glossy. Um, of that, and then when they had a flyover of the four aircraft carriers and like eight cruisers that were in our group right there, um, so I've got that picture from like the top down, which is you know something that you probably you hope that you never see, you know, if you know what I mean. But yeah, so there's that picture. But yeah, but that that picture of the launch of the missile actually leaving the the armored box launcher made soldier of fortune. Well, these cruise missiles, I mean, they're imagine drones before there were drones, but just insane speed capabilities and devastating payloads. Yeah, it's really odd to watch. Now, I was a gunner's mate guns. We had gunner's mate missiles who worked on the anti-aircraft, anti-ship missiles. But the guys that worked on the Tomahawks had had a uh, what was known as fire controlmen, fire meaning fire direction, like shooting. And because they had to have specific clearances because they could be nuclear tipped. And so, you know, um, those missiles, when they take off, you know, I'm standing up. I've watched it one, one of the two times. And they come out like rather slowly out of the launcher and they look like an old aluminum cigar cigar tube right and they they leave out of there and then it kicks in you know the the fins deploy and and the engine takes over so like the initial push to get out of the launcher is kind of kind relatively slow and slow enough that you can actually snap a picture and get it good you know, you know, even with until actual takeoff, until right? actual takeoff, and then the thing's gone. You know, and so what kind of range do they have? About, a, I think back then about a thousand. <laughs> you know, um, maybe a little less because you know we we launched into, um, like I said, we were in the in the Red Sea in the Gulf of Aqaba when we launched them, and then they went into Iraq. 
Well, what had to happen for an order to come down to fire one? And, and how much time did it take to actually program one? And how much time did you know? You I, have? I wish I wish I did know. I know. No, basically, it is it is all programming. You know, so you know we're talking. You know, at that point in time, that's when they first started to have. Um, you know, back, I think it was the late 70s, early 80s, you know, is when they started to develop them. Now, this I do know because of my dad's job. He worked on air launch cruise missiles, the ones that they would drop from B-52s and B-1s. And, you know, he worked on basically the system that held them to the B-52 and, and stuff like that. But they would just read a map. They fly low, and they're, they're getting a terrain map you know, from from the ground below, and they have a map embedded, and they just know where to go, just like your GPS system on your phone. You know, and so they can they hug the terrain once they get over land, and so that's why you know if you remember back then, you know they were saying, hey, it looks like it's following a street, and well, it was following a street, mm-hmm. you know, until it went to its you know destination and its target. You see, working on the cannons and small arms, you know, those things have been around for a thousand years in some form or another. Pull trigger, push button, it goes out, then it hits what you aimed at. So how did those orders come down? How did you you know what you Well, you knew you were going to shoot ahead of time, okay? And so... and so you would get the order, and were they warning shots, or were they were they intended? These were intended. These were intended, um, and basically you had you have different types of of shells. You know, like you might have like a proximity shell for like anti aircraft. So like if you had aircraft going, this thing will go and it senses something's there and it, and it puffs. Just think of like the old anti aircraft stuff from the, from you know your old World War II movies. Mm. Kind of. You might have like a like a mechanical time, so the fuse is timed, so you know how fast the the, the round is traveling, right? And so. You and you know, like from point A to point B, how long that thing's going to take it. So you might want to do like an air burst above where you know the troops are, so on. You have uh, point det, point detonating, you know, high explosive point detonating, to, and you have things that would like penetrate a ship, then explode. So there's different types of rounds, and so you would get an order. We want these types of rounds, and so you would get those ready. Um, there is like uh, the magazines are actually below the water line, okay, and they're sealed off. You know, like any time you go into any type of uh, um, battle stations, you know, the ships lock down. You know, all the watertight doors are, are dog, you know, what they call dog down or tightened up. And mm-hmm. everything. So you're sealed up in this area, and that's where I was in, in the Mississippi. I was like several, de- I was, you know, decks below in the magazine. And then it had a separate powder canister, which had, it looked like, um, you know, the packing peanuts. Yeah. It looked like packing peanuts that are inside, like an aluminum charge. Mm-hmm. Right? And they're in, like, a, like a, even a, a, a segregated room within that magazine with a heavy steel fire-resistant bulkhead in between and just like a little portal that is actually sealed until you need it, that opened up and they pass it through there. You take that, you take the actual rounds from the bins, whichever ones that you're needed, and you got a hoist, 
like an elect like a mechanical hoist that will bring it up until it goes into a drum now that drum fit 20 rounds and then you got the guys that are like in that same remember i told you about the same little like operating room that yeah little 10 by 20 or 12 by 20 yeah they're in there and they're observing to make sure everything's straight and everything's going well up there and then you have a control panel that you could actually you know target and shoot right but more more than likely these fire controlmen are doing it in the operations area of the ship they they actually remotely took control of the gun it's just like redundant systems if theirs doesn't work ours will work type thing and then like when i was on the truett it was an older system so you actually had a couple people inside the gun mount that's where i was on the truett i was inside there so there was even a third way and so you would get the order and you would just line it up and they would just say you know three rounds go for it you know you fire your three rounds or they fired a round and then they would adjust and then fire three four five rounds no i was going to ask is yeah. it was it always the same or were there different numbers of no rounds no yeah target? yeah they, they they would they would basically usually they would there was an observer either either through a helicopter or something back back then you knew where your targets were on the island or wherever you know or some of the other ships are firing actually into Kuwait. We were on an island. They would actually find, you know, where they were going, and then they would just lay it. They used to, we used to practice that on the uh, Truett a lot down in, well, they don't do it anymore because uh, Viegas Island used to be the only live fire place in, in the eastern U.S. that the Navy could fire on. They don't, they don't have that anymore. And, um, but it was the same thing. I mean, you would fire, you know, a couple hundred rounds a day down there, you know, and it, it was just routine. You know, you knew what you had to do because you were constantly training for it. You listen, and, you listen to marching orders. So were a lot of your targets, were they in open sea? Were they in ports or were some, some of them on, on the islands or on the lands? They were, they were, they were, um, they were on land. They were on land. Everything was oh, on land. Yeah, yeah, because we were so far away from everything, um, for the most part, in Aqaba, right? And so, and so we're 99% of the ships that were, you know, really didn't, you know, use cannons at all. Like the, the battleships that they had there did with their 16 inches, they were fine. And most of them were firing missiles, Right. The whole idea was, if, if you, again, if you go back, was they were trying to fool the Iraqis that they were doing an, uh, an old World War II Pacific, you know, Marines hit the beach landing. Mm-hmm. So they were doing everything they can to make them think that they were going to hit the beach, you know, Iwo Jima style. And that's when the army went through the desert and came around them, and, and that was the whole trick. It's a little diversion yeah, system going yeah, on. Yeah, and so um, these were the last firings of of the uh, Wisconsin and the and the uh, Iowa class battleships, which were phenomenal to see. I mean, you see, one we we went through the Suez with one of them. I want to say it was the Wisconsin. The second time we went through. Um, in late November of 90. 
and just seeing that thing, even though I've seen them before when, you know, in Norfolk, but to see them actually moving, you know, was just something else. But to see their faces when they saw that Wisconsin, I mean, it was... <laughs> that was yeah, shocking that, all. That was shocking all. <laughs> I mean, because, the, you know, you're in like a 10-foot little boat with like a 24-horse motor going from the Sinai, you know, the Egypt on the Sinai side to the mainland of Egypt, and you see this 800-foot monstrosity, you know, mm-hmm. coming coming down through, you know, it, it was something else. How how long were you part of the uh, the maritime interdiction? Well, force? I got there, like I said, we left maybe August 8th, August 9th, whatever, whatever that two-day, three-day period was. And I got back just before April Fool's Day. I think it was like March 30th or something something akin to that. It was just before April Fool's Day. And so that whole length of time, basically. What was that like after, just as you're finishing up and you're, you're about to come home? I mean, because that's a lot of excitement. I mean, here you are. You're in the Red Sea. You're in the Suez Canal, the Gulf of Aqaba. A lot's going on there. So what was it like coming home and, and just... Actually, myself and um, a friend of mine that, that kind of got shanghai the same way I did, um, actually put in requests to stay, to, like, transfer to a ship that was inbound, um, mainly because I wanted to save money. You know, I knew I was going to get out after just one enlistment, and I knew I wanted to go back to college and uh, this was basically like a forced savings account. Yeah, because you were, you were deployed twice, actually. Yeah, yeah. and so um, I had been sending home prior to this um, some money back to my parents to pay off an old student loan, and then I just kept it up, you know, kept sending them the same amount. And then while I was deployed, I, they were getting my, basically my entire check, you know, I was keeping a little bit there, but they were getting everything. And so by the time I got out, I had a little over 12000 saved up, you know, for a car and to go to school and so on before my GI Bill came that, That'd be a good dinner right about now. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, he and I, I mean, he was a little bit older than me at the time, too. Um, he, he wanted to go back and get his master's, and I just wanted to finish up my bachelor I, at the time. So I was like, hey, I'll, I'll go back. You know, this, I'm already here. It's not like it's going to be any longer because I only had, you know, a few months left on my enlistment anyway because I, I was due to get out in November. And so I was like, it's only a few months. And I think that's why they told me to go home because it, it was only a few months. You know, and if they wanted somebody, they wanted somebody that would be there for the whole, you know, uh, duration of that ship's deployment. And so we wound up coming back. And um, usually at the end of a deployment in the Navy, um, they do what they call a stand down, which they only keep like a skeletal crew on the ship while everybody goes on leave. Well, I volunteered to stay. You know, I didn't have, you know, I wasn't married, didn't have kids, you know, I. I just had my parents and, you know, my sisters and so on. Put skeletal crew into perspective. Are we talking still 100? Probably out of that 600, you're probably down to like maybe, you know, 100 or two. So we stayed and wound up uh, not going on our leave for like a month later. 
where everyone else already went. And so after after we came back, after about a month or two, that ship, the Mississippi, actually went into Portsmouth Naval Shipyards to get totally get redone. You know, just, you know, it was at time to. Uh, it's been decommissioned. Into, well, no, it wasn't decommissioned at that time. When it was deployed um, to the Gulf, it was scheduled to go into the shipyards to basically get refurbished. And so they had to cancel that when it went to the Gulf. And so when it came back, it just went into the shipyards to be refurbished. Ships are on like a schedule to go into dry dock to fix everything, update everything. You know, just like your car needs service after so long. And so it, it went into Portsmouth Naval Shipyard and went into dry dock. And so, you know, our jobs basically was to take everything apart, put it all back together again. You know, so take everything apart, make sure everything was working, cleaned up, you know, in good working order and put everything back together again and replace what needed to be replaced. And so that was basically the tail end of you know my time in the navy was doing that and then that's when i got out and um a couple months later i enrolled into the university of akron you're a zip yeah i'm a zip and you're uh, the rue yeah <laughs> and um i i got my uh my bachelor's degree and then eventually my master's right after that and then um after that um a couple months after i graduated with my master's I got my job down here in Columbus at the uh, Ohio Department of Taxation in the Tax Analysis Division, sort of uh, as an economist, basically doing research on uh, tax legislation and tax proposals and tax reform type stuff, and been with taxation ever since. So you're keeping yourself busy. You're you have you're part of a few different organizations, and there's one I've got to ask you about. I pronounce it, but I can't pronounce it. It looks French. What is that? Uh, La Société de Quarante Hommes et Huit Cheveux. It's the Society of Forty Men or Eight Horses. It started as sort of like an honor society of the American Legion back in the 20s. For the record, real quick, by the way, when I, when I actually write this up, I'm going to make sure that I have him write this down for me again, because there's no way on earth I'm going to be able to pronounce that one. <laughs> um, it started out as like an honor society from the American Legion in the 20s. It's now its own independent group. And the name uh, 40 Men and, or 8 Horses came from the symbol that was on the box cars that the American soldiers were shipped to in the front in World War One, it said, you know, the box car could hold either 40 men or eight horses. Hmm. And so um, that's how it got its name. It's, it's a rather small group. You know, Ohio's got actually one of the larger contingents, um, but it's a rather small group because, again, it started out, it sprung from the American Legion at the time. And then, um, how'd, you, how'd you get involved with this? Well, um, I am the commander of VFW Post 4719 in Gahanna. I've been the commander, um, this is my third year. And uh, Gahanna's VFW Post also has American Legion Post 797 in it. And a lot of, in order to join the VFW, you had to basically have served in like a combat zone of some sort. And that's the main difference between the Legion and the VFW. And the Legion, you don't necessarily have to have served in a, in a combat zone. 
And so, but a lot of the VFW members there belong to the Legion. Well, the 40 and 8s Franklin County contingent meets at our post, and I was asked mm. if I wouldn't, you know, mind joining. Um, our VFW post not only has the VFW, the American Legion, the 40 and 8, but the local Marine Corps League meets there as well. So we have four different veterans organizations that meet there. Um, so I'm the commander of the VFW. I'm like the the number three guy for the Legion there, but only because I'm the commander of the VFW, you know, to show up at their meetings and so on to give them. Because it's our building. You know, they have full use of it, mm-hmm. but it's our bu- So if there's like a... Um, like we're going to uh, the Chillicothe VA, so we would ask the Legion if they wanted to help contribute to um, to the material and the support of the vill- uh, of the veterans that, that are down there in, at the VA hospital. You know, so I would relay that at their meeting and so on and so forth. And then the forty and eight, um, I'm like sort of like the recording secretary for them. And um, one good thing about them is uh, every year we give a nursing scholar, two nursing scholarships. Well, that's great. Yeah. I mean, that's the one thing. You know, people have a an idea that the the veterans organizations like the VFW or the American Legion, that it's a bar. Well, the bar exists because we give tons of money away. But last year... Um, my VFW alone, this little 300-person post in, in Gahanna, gave away over $16,000 to different charitable um, causes. Everything from paying some old, old guy's rent, you know, who couldn't make rent, um, food, food assistance. We run a, a food pantry there from May through uh, October. But plus, we buy uh, Giant Eagle gift cards and things of that nature. Scholarships, we give away scholarships to Gahanna Lincoln band members, um, $1,550. A $1,000 scholarship, a $500 scholarship, and a $250 scholarship. Um, We have the Voice of Democracy and Patriot Pen programs, which are going on right now. Um, and, And with those, it would be... You go to post level. If you win there, you go to district, you go to state, and you go to national. Um, so we get, have basically three different scholarships there. The 40 and 8's nursing scholarship, you know, American Legion's very involved with uh, Buckeye's Boy State. You know, they, they ba- that's basically their baby. Yep. To your point, actually, yeah, there's... I think a lot of people don't realize some of the things these organizations do. I know I've got some friends in the uh, Johnstown American Legion Post 254, and I know some of the things they do, some of the, the toys they provide for kids at Christmas. and That's coming up for us, too. Um, one of our auxiliary members and the widow of my predecessor um, does what we call a breakfast with Santa in December, and they operate with Gahanna residents in need, Grin, which is the organization yep. there. And uh, I think she puts on for 20, 25 families. You know, mm. she runs it. I cut her a check. You know, it's her baby, but I, we cut the check for that. And um, we provide them with gifts, you know, like a, like a little, you know, snack time and stuff in Santa Claus. Um, you know, like I said, November, actually we do the hospital visits. I coordinate that on my birthday. That's like my birthday give back. 
so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm doing it the day before my birthday, which is November 2nd. Um, People will give me money and I just bundle it up into one big check. And then the VA hospital gives me their patient's wish list, you know, everything from socks to uh, flip for um, slippers and, you know, with the non-skid or the uh, bottoms to them. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, pajamas, sweatpants, you know, there's a laundry list, including things of like cup of soups for the guys that are going to be there a while, you know, like a long while. Um, And that kind of hit home last time we did this because they gave us a tour of the dementia wing. And that was that, that was heartbreaking. But to see the stuff that they were actually doing down there for them, you know, was amazing because we didn't know this. When we did our trip last year, they had in their kind of like visitor center um, a big sort of to-do on their dementia wing and and how to work with somebody with dementia, et cetera, et cetera. Is it a range of, age, range of ages? Yeah, because, because they have like the psychiatric wing down there. They have... Columbus doesn't have an inpatient hospital. Chalmers is outpatient only. Um, So our hospital is basically Chillicothe, Dayton. Those are the two closest ones. And so, you know, that's where their inpatient hospital is. But there are some people that are going to, they're kind of there for the hall. Mm -hmm. You know, know, and um, they don't have anybody. And so, you know, our post and other VFWs, American Legions, Disabled American Veterans, and all these other organizations, they usually try to, you know, go down. So I know some of them go down there monthly, you know, and, and do like monthly visits with them down there. We go, we try to go um, right before Thanksgiving. Like I said, I want to do it around my birthday. It's kind of like a birthday give back. And one last question for you, Ernest. Just adjusting to civilian life, and I've, I've talked to a lot of veterans who have struggled, some haven't, but I've heard a lot of uh, veterans just talk about, you've heard the whole uh, 22 a day, uh, suicides a day. Yeah. What advice would you give to somebody who might be struggling with depression or maybe thinking the you know, worst? You know, before I was even in the military, my mom... Um, the majority of her family um, comes from Newark, New Jersey. That's where they that's where they grew up. And God, five, six of her nephews were uh, policemen in Newark, New Jersey. Okay, you know Newark is not a friendly town. <laughs> okay, um, particularly back in the seventies and early eighties and so on. You had three three policemen to a police vehicle in some places there. Every one of them were were like, I can't wait to retire. I can't wait to retire. I can't wait to retire. Well, one of my cousins, you know, finally reached his 20 some odd year and he retired. And I remember my mom talking to my other cousin who was still on the police force. She said, how's he doing? Because what do you mean? How's he doing? He's still at the police station. He goes there every day. When you're like, a policeman, a fireman, or in the military, particularly retired military, your life is so regimented. You have such a routine. And even, you know, one day is, you know, completely different from the day before and is completely different from the next. You live for that, right? That's why a lot of people, they can't adjust 
to that free time. It's almost like a prisoner who's been in prison for several years, right? And so, you know, my focus was I went to college and basically got kicked out because I didn't go to class. I've been in the Navy four years. I think I'd like to learn a little bit and go back to school. And so school was my focus, right? I took way more classes to be full-time, you know, and finished that bachelor's in, in just a couple of years and then got my master's in a year and then, you know, got the job down here. And then, you know, I just put everything into the job, basically. And that's why a lot of people, when they get out, particularly those that have served in wartime, and I, I don't mean someone like me, I mean someone that was in physical combat, they need something that takes that place. Whether it, you know, you had the summit for soldier guys that were here in Columbus that climbed Mount Everest, you know, and so there's like a climbing group. You've got um, Team Red, White, and Blue, which started up from, you know, um, post 9-11. These tend to be younger veterans that wanted to actually physically do something. You know, they're the ones that... A friend of mine does a lot of the 5Ks in Red, White, and Blue. Yeah, yeah. So you you know what, what I'm talking about. They do the bike-a-thons, you know, those 100, 200-mile bike races and things of that nature. Um, find yourself that niche and belong to these organizations because in these organizations, they have guys that have seen it and done it and felt it and bled it and cried it and everything else. And they can steer you in the right direction, you know, and so to say to connect with them through the VFW American Legion, you know, whatever veterans organization there are out there, connect with it and get involved with it because then you can turn around and help the person behind you. And I think doing that, you know, might take that edge off. Ernest Massey Thanks for joining us, and thank you for your service. Thank you. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Tell us what you think of marching orders, or let us know about a veteran you think should tell us his or her story. Email us at online at thisweeknews.com. That's online at thisweeknews.com, subject line, marching orders. Check us out at thisweeknews.com or follow us on one of our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Everything is at This Week News. That's at This Week News. I'm Scott Hummel. Thanks for listening.